So the reading is from Matthew 25, starting at verse 1, going through to 13, and it's the parable of the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise one, however, took oil in the jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the doors for us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Thanks, Lee. That's great. Okay, we went to our fourth sermon on our series on parables. And last week, Michael took us through the parable of the wicked tenants. And we saw that the parable wasn't actually about the wicked tenants. It was more about how kind the owner of the vineyard was. And how gracious he was to the tenants. Far more gracious than certainly I I would have been to them. They would have been out. um, First sign of any trouble. Um, So this week we're looking at the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, a very odd parable that's puzzled me for a long time and um, yeah who has uh, managed to read this parable and sit in it cool, awesome. briefly cool um, any impressions any first impressions be prepared yeah yeah so be prepared Yeah, yeah, it's selfish, yeah. I just looked at the fact that you've got five. I mean, if you look related to Christianity, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah. So you've got those who are prepared and those who call themselves Christians who are not prepared. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Quite, quite a sobering, sobering message. Yeah. Anyone else? Did anyone think it was fair? They seem unfair to me. They seem to be a bit rough. Like, 
the punishment far outweighs the crime. Um, I mean, I'm hopeless at remembering stuff. So I kind of feel a bit for these <laughs> the virgins that kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, be all right. Someone will have some oil we'll be able to get from somewhere. And then next minute, they're, they're you know, stop. Well, it's a bit rough, but harsh. Um, yeah, so again, in my mind, when I read this parable, it seems to me to be unfair. Um, and, you know, it's just like, couldn't you just cut them a bit of slack so I can give them a bit of oil and, you know, but no. So um, the key to understanding this parable, as always, and, and I think it, it's reflected, I've reflected for a number of years on this parable, and it, it seemed to me to under, understand the cultural context, that that's what it's going to be uh, really helpful when we come to understand this parable. So, as John Moulton says, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So it was written for us, but not to us. And that means we come to the scriptures with all of our mindsets, how we see the world, and, and we carry all that baggage with us when we read the scriptures. But if we're going to really understand the scriptures, we need to get into the mind of a first century Jew and how they would have understood the parable. And fortunately, we have some pretty amazing scholars like Kenneth Bailey and Chuck Missler who are able to give us the cultural context for this parable. So, here's a painting I found on the, I think it's from the Middle Ages by the look of the style. So, um, how did a man go about getting a wife back in the, back in the day? Well, he would uh, hopefully meet a girl that, that he would think was a bit of all right. And then he would take the initiative and he would go to see her father and negotiate a bride price for her. So um, that's quite a big deal. He had, a, he had actually got to pay probably quite a bit. <laughs> now once the groom had the money together, he would go to the father of the girl that he's keen on and he would pay the money and then the marriage covenant was established and from then on they were regarded as husband and wife. So once he paid the money, then they were officially married and they would, uh, the bride was considered to be consecrated or sanctified, set apart exclusively for her groom. And as a symbol of the covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and the bride drank from a cup of wine over which the betrothal had been pronounced. Okay, so <clears throat> guy gets his money together, goes to the father bride. Um, they uh, have a ceremony. They drink from a cup of wine together, and then they officially become uh, husband and wife. Uh, but then he goes back to his father's house, leaves her behind. He goes back to his father's place and he remained separated from his bride for approximately 12 months. That's kind of different, eh? Um, and this affords the bride time to gather her trousseau, as they call it. Glory box, I think, was the, was the old term. All her womanly stuff and prepare for married life. And during this period, the groom would prepare a dwelling place in his father's house to which he would bring his bride. 
And so in the traditional life, village life of the Middle East, the weddings take place during the seven months of the hot and cloudless summer. And then, so what would happen on the day of the celebration, family and friends would begin to gather at the groom's place. So this is his place that he's got ready for his bride. And the groom and a few close friends would make their way to the home of the bride, which is probably across town in another village. And then when the bride was ready, she was placed on the back of a riding animal, probably a donkey. And then the groom with his friends would form a disorganised, exuberant parade that would take the longest possible route through the village and then get back to his place, right? So it's, it's an opportunity um, to go through as many streets of the village as possible, maybe go through someone else's village, <laughs> um, so that as many of the villagers could take part in the joy of the celebration. At the groom's home, the crowd would wait in the street as they anticipate the arrival of the wedding party. And then when the bridal procession was sighted, a great shout would go up and the crowd would escort the procession into the groom's house for the feast. So they, and, and this, there's some other very interesting stuff, which I won't go into. <laughs> Quite interesting, let's just say. Okay, so the key figures in the parable uh, are the ten virgins. And they have uh, appeared to be given a special task of adding the light of their lamps for the bridal party. So this is an important job. Now either the village was a a very large one or the groom knew a lot of people and he stopped to talk to them all on the way back with his bride. Um, But whatever the reason, the procession took a lot longer than anyone expected. And five of them were wise because they anticipated this delay and they had extra olive oil with them. And the other five were not so wise uh, because they did not have any extra oil. And whatever the reason, all ten virgins fell asleep. And when the great shout erupted, the signalling arrived, the arrival of the bridal party, the scripture says, Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. So it's clear to me that initially all ten lamps were going. Okay, because they see their lamps are going out. So they started off with oil in the lamps, and maybe they put them on the shelf or something, on the fence, and just adjusted them so they were barely going, and then they fell asleep. So it's not like the five foolish ones were totally inept and didn't take any, like they took an empty lamp along. It wasn't like that. They started off with some oil. They just didn't expect the groom to take so long as to arrive at midnight. And trim their lamps. I was like, what does that mean? So I had to go to wiki, as you do. <clears throat> so uh, this is what wiki had to say. The skilled part of being a lamp trimmer was the ability to trim the wick in such a way. So, so you're getting a pair of scissors or something and you're trimming the wick. Because as you know, if you've, if you've ever used one of those oil lamps, the, the end of the wick gets burnt and frayed. So the, a, a lamp trimmer uh, trimmed the wick in such a way that it would burn evenly without hot spots, so that it would not need attention again for some time. A poorly trimmed wick creates a flame which is dim and smoky. A properly trimmed wick should come to a rounded point or should be wedge shaped. When lit, the wick should burn cleanly all the way up to the highest flame it can make. The flame should be at least the width of the wick and even not ragged. 
So that's what trimming the lamp means. It's, it's getting the, after a period of, of burning, um, when, the, when the ends all burnt and frayed, it's um, trimming it again uh, so that it, it, it works properly and gives out as much light as possible. Okay, let's go to the interpretation of this parable. Now, if you look at the context of the parable, Jesus told it in response to the disciples' question regarding the end times and what signs would occur. And then immediately preceding this parable, Jesus warns the disciple to keep watch, stay awake, because they would not know the day that he would return. So the groom obviously represents Jesus, and the ten virgins represent the disciples. Now, what puzzled me a bit in, in, the, in the light of the cultural context was that the groom was going to the bride's house and he was coming back with the bride. And we know that the scripture talks about the church being the bride of Christ. So I was like, how does that work? Like, is he, is he coming? He's obviously coming back with his bride, but then we've got these ten virgins that represent the disciples or the church. Um, but I think because the, the bride is not specifically mentioned in the parable, I think that um, that's the, the bride in, in this sense is, one, one commentator said it was orthogonal to the story. In other words, it wasn't important. It wasn't an important part of the story. So I think that the ten, um, the ten virgins definitely represent us as believers and disciples of Jesus. So added to this is what Kenneth Bailey says of both the gender and the number of virgins. Like Jesus could have could have told the story about ten men, but he didn't. He used ten women. And on top of this they were virgins. And so there's this guy, um, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, Ibn al Tayyib who was a great Syrian Orthodox monk, scholar, physician, and poet of the 11th century. It's cool, eh? It's like 900 years ago, this guy was studying the same parable. It's really amazing. So this guy points out that the, the church is indeed always feminine in the Gospels, the Bride of Christ. Okay? So it's appropriate that Jesus chose a woman to act the part of the membership of the church. Okay, so the reason why they're um, women is that they represent the bride of Christ and the bride is feminine. On top of this, he said that ten males were required for a valid wedding ceremony. And so Jesus is kind of affirming the status and the worth of women in the composition of the parable. So that would have been a bit confronting, uh, perhaps, for uh, some in those days, that, that, that there were ten and they were women. Now, what is the significance of the virgin status of the woman and what does the oil represent? And I found this awesome quote from this guy, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, who lived from 1754 to 1833. And he said this, Some say that the lack of oil in the lamps of the foolish virgins means a lack of good deeds in their lifetime. 
such an interpretation is not quite correct. Why should they be lacking in good deeds if they are called virgins, even though foolish ones? Virginity is the supreme virtue in angelic state, and it could take the place of all other good works. I think that what they were lacking was the grace of the all Holy Spirit of God. These virgins practiced their virtues, but their spiritual ignorance made them suppose that the Christian life consisted merely in doing good works. By doing a good deed, they thought that they were doing the work of God, but they little cared whether they acquired them by the grace of God's Holy Spirit. Patristic books mention such ways of life based on doing good without testing whether the ways bring the grace of the Spirit of God. There is another way which is being good at the beginning, but it, it, it ends at the bottom of hell. Quite a sobering kind of um, statement from this guy, Saint Seraphim. So first of all, when we, when we look at this quote, I don't know about you, but it struck me how um, highly virginity was valued. And this is, this is what, 200 years ago? Now it's regarded as a bit of an embarrassment. <clears throat> you know, the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin is, is like, it's embarrassing to get to 40 and he's still a virgin. But back in those days, it was highly prized. And, and I think, I, I for one, I'd like to see as the church, if we could ask the Lord to re-establish the esteem to which virginity is held and actually hold it up as, as a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, uh, virginity. It's not something to be like discarded and, and to got, gotten rid of as soon as you can. It, it's kind of like what our culture says. But I think he's right. <coughs> All teen women were virgins. However, it wasn't their virginity that enabled them to enter the wedding feast. Okay? It wasn't their virginity that allowed them to get in. It was the abundance of oil that they had. And that the oil should represent the all-holy, the grace of the all-holy Spirit of God. That makes total sense of what we've been looking at, right, over these last few weeks. Well, quite a while, actually. To be excluded from the kingdom of God is a big deal, right? And, and to, to, to forget, to make it sound like uh, it's just something you forgot. Okay, initially that, that what I thought was being unfair, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Holy Spirit of God, then that makes total sense of why someone would be excluded. <coughs> so we shouldn't trust in our own virtue or goodness but actually realise that our goodness is insufficient to secure our entry into heaven. And that is why we can only rely on the grace or undeserved favour of God for our eternal security. So what this guy was saying, St. Seraphim, pretty much was that the virtue of virginity represents what we do, and the oil and the flame represent what we believe. What we believe is therefore much more important. Okay? That they were virgins and that, that this was a wonderful thing to treasure is great. But the, the oil and the flame represent what they, why they're doing it. Okay, so it represents what they believe about um, their status. 
<clears throat> okay, does that make does that make sense? Now that's not to say that what you do isn't important, but it, it does say that why you do what you do is important. And obviously, um, as Joseph Prince says, if you believe right, you will live right. Right believing leads to right living. <coughs> Now, does the even split between the number of wise and foolish virgins have any significance? Perhaps it's a reflection of the split, as, as Clive pointed out, who think they're part of the bride of Christ, the church, and those that actually are. However, Kenneth Bailey said this, As is often the case, the reader of the parable is left hanging. Does the bridegroom relent and invite them in or not? The listener or reader is not told. The locked door is what they deserve. Why? Because you know, they had one job and they didn't do it. We do not know what they receive when the conversation is over. In the Middle East, the word no is never an answer. Rather, it is a, a pause in negotiations. The reader has to finish the play. <clears throat> so that's quite interesting, eh? The word no is never an answer. The final answer, rather, is a, it is a pause in negotiation. So, we don't know. We don't know... Um, what happens we're, we're left now it's pretty obvious to me that oh, I kind of lean to the, towards the belief that you know because the, the group says I, I don't know you that's pretty significant <laughs> if someone says I don't know you even though, and that's that's kind of weird when you think about it because they would have been invited to the wedding right so if you, you're invited to a wedding obviously you know you know the groom and then he says, I don't know you. <clears throat> but however, we have to finish the play. And it's interesting that God's kingdom has a door that can and does close. <clears throat> and Jesus' parable therefore places limits on the sacred cow of inclusiveness. <clears throat> that was revered in Roman times and is now once more revered in our civilization. Now, one thing that really blew me away about this parable is this as a symbol of the covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and the bride drank from a cup of wine over which the betrayal had been pronounced. Does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of communion? That really, really moved me when I thought that the communion, communion that we're about to share uh, is the same thing that happened when the bride and the groom, well, the groom came for the bride and he paid his price. <clears throat> and the fact that Jesus gave this as a symbol of his love for us, it, like he... Jesus gave us the symbol before he paid the price. And yet he asked us to continue this symbol uh, to remind us of his love. Oh, thanks to that. So when we take communion, as, as we come together in a little while, 
I'd like to encourage you to remember this picture that we are part of his bride, the church. And the price that Jesus paid for us was his very life. His body and blood which is shed for us. So this parable tells us that there's one thing and one thing only that we should attend to above everything else as we wait for the return of the Lord. And he is taking a long time, isn't he? <laughs> He's taking a long time. And the, the fact that all ten virgins fell asleep is totally understandable. And we can, we can relate to that as we wait for the Lord to, to come back. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. And, you know, that, that's kind of like, come Lord, how long is this going to take? But above all, there is one thing that we should attend to. And it's summed up in the lyrics of Cornerstone that we just sang before. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then be in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. And we can, we can see that the gift of his righteousness that we stand in is a result of his grace. It's a gift. It's not, it's not a virtue that we produce. It's not something that we generate like, like virginity or, or something that, that we can point to. It's a gift that comes from Him and it's through the, the Holy Spirit that that happens. Just like this parable where the oil and the lamp cause that flame to burn. So that represents the grace, the grace of God. So the one thing above all else we are to attend to is to make sure that we are in Christ, clothed in His righteousness, not our own, not our own, which is given as a free gift through the grace of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be generated by ourselves, and it can't be purchased. <coughs> it simply needs to be received in humility. And once again, this parable shows us how important grace is. It's not just a touchy-feely nice word. It is the difference between being part of the kingdom of God and not. The virgins who relied on their virtue were shut out of the wedding feast because they didn't have the light of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So just as I invite the music team to come up, what are you relying on? When you do good things, are you trying to accumulate brownie points with God? Or are you simply responding in gratitude for the grace which you know you have already received? When you are wronged, do you respond in anger when your goodness is questioned? That's something that I realised uh, a while ago. I responded in anger when someone questioned my integrity and I was realised I was trying to justify myself. Do you try to get even with people when they do something bad to you? If someone cuts you off when you're in the car, do you chase after them and try and cut them off as well? Or do you ask Jesus for the grace to respond in love to them? Let's just spend a few moments in quiet and prayer.
Lord, we ask you to examine our hearts. Lord, help us to lift to you to anything in our, in our lives that would represent us trying to justify ourselves. Us trying to point to ourselves, to our goodness. Lord God, would you give us the reliance on your grace, on your Holy Spirit that brings your righteousness, your your beautiful, perfect righteousness. And Lord, we accept your perfect righteousness. Help us to live in that place where we are consciously clothed in your goodness, Lord, and we have rejected our own. In your name we pray. Amen.